Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Have you joined EMDA's new initiative called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC? Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the position of the society. Speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. All right, welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, uh, sponsored by Vivage on August 5th, 2021. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, a couple topics. The first is uh, I'm going to present kind of an update on aducanumab and uh, just talk about some of the challenges that I think we're all facing now and we potentially face in the future uh, with this approval. And then uh, Dr. Gom and Dr. Watson are going to discuss kind of the latest and greatest uh, with COVID. So with that, um, I'm sure everybody's aware by now of uh, aducanumab and its approval. Um, if you haven't already, I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to uh, Dr. Leah Watson's uh, summary before the approval, which I, I find it even more fascinating because it was before it was approved. Um, and so it was a, a maybe a little cleaner look at, at what was going on, at least at that time. So I think it's worth going through a, a quick summary of aducanumab, where we're at right now. And, and then I did you know, I, I felt like maybe going into the data in a little more detail would be helpful. Um, at least it is for me, or was for me to um, kind of tease out what the spin has been by Biogen and others um, versus what the data actually says and, and how they're taking the data, um, this postdoc analysis, and, and using it to essentially say they had a positive trial and then uh, promote the treatment. So aducanumab, as a reminder, is a, it's a monoclonal antibody treatment against uh, amyloid beta, and it's manufactured by Biogen. It was improve, approved on June 7th by the FDA for use with patients with mild Alzheimer's disease and mild cognitive impairment um, through an accelerated approval pathway. Um, it's worth noting, I think, as well, that the initial approval was for anyone with Alzheimer's, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Um, I think that's maybe a testament to the state of mind of the FDA at the time, um, but they did uh, then retract that and indicate that it was only approved for the the, um, the same criteria for that were met in the trial, which is uh, mild Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about the data. I think it's helpful to kind of understand how we got to uh, the ability for Biogen to claim that they have a positive trial and then uh, in turn what the FDA keyed in on for approval. So, you know, this all started uh, with a, a trial, an early phase uh, trial, 165 patients um, with Biogen who had mild Alzheimer's disease and they received doses of aducanumab uh, monthly and it was, they received they received progressively 
uh, higher doses over the course of the trial. The, the two things that became clear in the trial, the first was that it, it really did appear to um, remove amyloid plaques. Um, the second thing is that uh, there were a number of side effects, specifically the um, aria, or you know, I'm just going to refer to it as brain edema, um, showed up in about 30% of those participants. And as a result, about half of them uh, stopped treatment. However, uh, that was enough of uh, a success that they went ahead and launched two large phase two uh, placebo-controlled trials called the EMERGE and the ENGAGE trial. And uh, both of these trials uh, had a primary endpoint, a primary outcome with the clinical dementia rating score, um, the, the clinical dementia rating box score is what it's referred to. Um, this CDR sum of boxes score, um, it's actually been analyzed in a number of trials to determine its ability to stage Alzheimer's as well as to track progression. And, um, you know, I, I think it could be argued that's one of the better scores we have out there to do this. However, um, as with any testing that looks at the clinical outcomes or progression of something like Alzheimer's, um, there's a number of, of challenges with it, one of which that stood out in the, in the data um, when they looked at this score was the fact that certain factors such as educational level definitely had a profound impact on how quickly that score went down. So people with a higher education level appeared to have a slower decline um, across the board when that, that score is used. Um, and it's worth noting that uh, particularly in the post-hoc analysis for um, the, the final analysis with Biogen, they did not stratify for education level. They also did not um, isolate that in their, in their larger styles, uh, larger studies. So the, the, the Biogen trials um, then looked, had this analysis of uh, 945 and 803 patients respectively in these two trials. And they had a routine planned uh, futility analysis done in March of uh, 2019. And at that time, they looked at the data up through December of 2018. And so that's the numbers I just said, the 945 and 803 patients, that's the number of patients that were that had completed the, the trial at that point. Um, based on that data, they decided that uh, the criteria uh, were met for futility, meaning that less than 20% um, uh, called conditional power, which is basically the probability that there's gonna be any statistical significance in these two trials using that data endpoint, the CDR um, box score, was uh, um, it wasn't high enough to justify continuing the trials. They considered them futile and uh, announced that they were going to close those trials. Then, subsequent to the March 2019 announcement, um, they had more data coming in from the trials. And so this data came in from uh, late December 2018 through March 2019. And you have 139 and 179 participants respectively in those two trials that, that this is the data that they analyzed um, post hoc. Really important things to point out with that data is that at that time it was unblinded. So um, partly based on the fact of the futility analysis, but also based on the, on the side effects, the adverse effects of the um, aria or brain swelling, um, they decided to unblind any further participants and then um, they began to analyze that, that data as it came rolling in post hoc. 
what they found was the 179 participants in the engaged trial, um, only 147 of which completed that trial, um, showed uh, a statistically significant outcome on that CDR box score. And with the number that they that Biogen continually promotes is a 23% improvement compared with placebo. If you look at that number in more detail, you realize that the 23% improvement um, is a comparison between the box scores, um, the final outcome of the placebo and the treatment arm on just the 147 participants that completed after the trial was unblinded after they considered things to be futile, after they presumably had spent tremendous amounts of money on the trial up to that point, those uh, amongst those uh, 147 participants, the actual difference between the, P, between the two scores was uh, 1.75 reduction in the placebo arm of that box score and a 1.35 score reduction in, in the eMERGE arm of that additional those additional participants that's an absolute value of 0.4 in a score in a test that is arguably um, not a a particularly highly sensitive test when you account for additional factors such as things like educational level i think it's also worth mentioning that um, at that time because it was unblinded um, then the that additional reduction i think pretty easily be um, explained by a, um, a greater reduction in the placebo arm of the trial after they realized that they were not getting the 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 after they realized they were in the placebo arm of the of the treatment so so now that we have this post-hoc analysis um, as a result then biogen reapplies for approval um, in fact in October of 2019, when they announced that they were going to apply for approval with the FDA, they actually sent out a, a press release challenging the FDA not to approve it. And uh, I think it speaks to the, the marketing efforts of Biogen at the time um, to try to use this small subset of the data as uh, evidence of a successful trial. The, the Biogen, um, you know, Continue, Biogen continually promotes the 23% number. Um, and so that's why I think it's important to understand the details of how they came about that actual percentage and to understand the absolute value difference. And the, hey, hey, Travis, yep. mm -hmm. this is Leah. I was trying to bite my tongue until the end, but I can't. Go ahead. Um, it's really important to know that these were two phase three trials that have not to this day, as of this morning, ever been peer reviewed. So the data that you're talking about is a selective release of data by the company. Absolutely. And, and again, it's, it, it's it, that's back to the- In fact, they submitted it to JAMA a few weeks ago and uh, returned to them for edits. And, and instead of making the- Hey, Leah, you're kind of cutting out a little bit. Hey, Travis, we need to wrap up in the next minute or so. Okay. So, so I, I, I think as, as Dr. Watson pointed out, you know, the, this was a very selective subset of the data 
um, that is fraught with uh, with issues, and you now have a, a drug that costs fifty six thousand dollars a year. Um, however, that number doesn't include the cost of PET scans, infusion centers, diagnosing. You also have a, a significant marketing effort by um, Biogen to uh, um, reach out to primary care providers to diagnose people, um, to identify people that would qualify for the, the treatment. Um, and specifically, they're focusing on mild cognitive impairment, which we all know is a very difficult thing to diagnose. Um, Biogen sponsored a quiz. It's available online. Um, I think it's actually worth looking at. Um, if anyone does that quiz and is not diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, then I imagine you're not human. Um, so it, it's really just trying to capture anything and everything they can to try to identify as many people as possible that would be eligible for the drug. Um, and, you know, I think that there are some potentially nefarious explanations for the FDA approval. You know, they include relationships between Biogen and certain FDA officials, major financial incentives. But I, I look at this with a little more charitable and simpler explanation that, you know, dementia is such a heart-wrenching, high-cost epidemic that's facing our entire population, and we desperately want and need something to help. Amyloid plaques have always been kind of a neat and convenient explanation, at least for um, a cause of Alzheimer's, but the hypothesis is not borne out in the data. Um, and, and especially not outside of early onset familiar Alzheimer's. And I, the FDA received significant pressure from the public, including people they know personally to actually do something. And I think more based on emotion and hope, they approved the treatment that they shouldn't have approved. And the fact that they approved it initially for anyone with Alzheimer's, I think is evidence of their state of mind at the time. Um, and I certainly think that this has the potential to undermine the credibility of the FDA in a big, big way, not to mention the downstream financial uh, effects of the medication and, and the costs of all of the, um, the initial diagnosis and, and then monitoring treatment as you administer the medication. Um, to, to just finish this up, just to give you an idea of that cost. Hey, Travis, um, we need to break yep. in. We're, we're going to okay. run out of time for the other. All right. All right. So I'll turn we over. will, yeah. And we will probably run over. And again, at one o'clock, if you need to get off, go ahead. Um, if you want to stay on, we will come back to this and answer questions and get Travis, have Travis and Leah, hopefully at the end as well. And now a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn. 
and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Um, Clay, I'm going to turn this over right now to Clay Watson, who's going to try to give us an update uh, quickly here on monoclonal antibodies, where they fit and which ones. Can you hear me? You can. I will, I will say I'm the lesser Dr. Watson um, or the, the other, other Dr. Watson. Yes. So just a few points on monoclonal antibodies um, and a few important points on ordering monoclonal antibodies. So monoclonal antibodies for the treatment of COVID. Do they work? Yes, they do. The literature bears that out. Uh, our own internal data, I think we've, we're up to 350 or 400 doses given, um, overwhelmingly positive results, reducing mortality from 18% to about 4.5%. So dramatic effect. Um, do they work against the Delta variant? This is very important. Some do, some don't. So the Eli Lilly product, otherwise known as Bamlanivimab, etacevimab. Does not work. Do not order it. Do not use it. Delta is the predominant variant throughout the country. It is here in Colorado. Um, those antibodies will not work. So we are down to the Regeneron product or GlaxoSmithKline product. Those are the only other two approved right now. Um, that's Casirumab, Imdevimab, or Sotrovimab. So we need to order those by name. I think those are the only things available through the pharmacy, um, but just make sure that you have the right monoclonal antibody or it won't work. Um, they have a very small side effect profile, unlike other an monoclonal antibody products. So um, that's really the thrust of what I wanted to get across. Also, um, the IV and or subcutaneous protocols are all on the FDA sheet. Um, make sure that, that your patient qualifies, right? So there's a whole qualification protocol. They have to have a positive test. It has to be within 10 days. I'll tell you the earlier, the better. And they can't already be progressing. So they can't have shortness of breath such that they need oxygen or new oxygen or increased oxygen requirement. So if they start to progress with that shortness of breath, you've already missed your window, okay? Um, make sure they rule in by age. And then there's another new hitch that was just released a few days ago by the FDA. So don't give them to someone who's fully vaccinated if you expect that the vaccine would work in them. So if you have a leukemic, or an uncontrolled diabetic, or someone on chemotherapy and they got the vaccine, but you think, well, they probably didn't respond to the vaccine. It's fine to give them the monoclonal antibodies. But what they're saying now is if you gave, you know, 65, uh, some heart disease, maybe obese, but no other immunocompromising status, and they're fully vaccinated, that's not someone who would benefit from the treatment, and they're not recommending to give that. So, Again, yes, they work. Make sure they rule in. Uh, and if you're going to give them to a fully vaccinated person, it would only be in the case if they have an immunocompromised condition. Lastly, remember only use the Regeneron and GlaxoSmithKline preparations. 
That's all I got, Craig. That's great. And I do have also Eric Wood uh, from Omnicare. So Eric, just if you want to give a couple minutes on, okay, I've got identified the right patient for this. What do we need to do and what do we need to know as providers? Thanks, Dr. Gum. Um, so yeah, once you have identified the patient, the order needs to be sent to the pharmacy. We'll, we then have a full toolkit that we'll send out to the facility. Um, the important thing to get the order going is that intake prescriber order form that we'll, we will send out. So that should be filled out. Once we have that back, the pharmacy will then mix, mix everything up and get it sent out to the facility. So just real quick, some of the items in the toolkit that we send out, we'll send out a nursing care plan a sample consent form if the facility wants to utilize that, administration flow sheet, facility preparation checklist, which I think is very helpful. It goes through all the steps, making sure the patient was identified correctly and just lets the nurses be set up for once that IV gets there because it doesn't need to be used within four hours of being mixed. Uh, the fact sheets, both the patient and healthcare provider pack fact sheet will go out uh, the administration procedure, and then there's just a monoclonal antibody algorithm as well. Um, and then just to close, we do have the Regeneron in stock. So we have that at the pharmacy here. The Citrovimab, per CMS, that was not going to be purchased by the government. So if that one is ordered, you know, that is going to be a cost to the facility. So... Uh, pharmacy, we have to buy that as well. So that makes it even easier. Just use Regeneron, which is Ciramab, right. Imdevimab. And I've seen those, those um, order sheets and all the lists that come out. They are crystal clear. It really is the easy button for ordering this stuff. Uh, so don't be afraid to use it when appropriate. Okay, I have not a lot to add to that. Um, I did send out one attachment that if I were you, I would either digitally or in print keep aside until it gets replaced and it will get replaced in a few months as we move on. But it is just really hard to keep track of, okay, they don't have any symptoms, but should they get monoclonal? Well, if they're high risk, maybe. Uh, but otherwise, mild to moderate symptoms, hospitalized, non-hospitalized, oxygen, no oxygen. Uh, just keep the sheet there rather than me read this to you today, tell you when to use dexamethasone. It's not all of these folks, it's some of them. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that are just dependent on where they are, how, whether or not they need oxygen and so forth. Just refer to the sheet rather than having me. And the other thing I'd re reiterate, we last went through this, I believe in March, uh, um, and the list of things not to use, the ivermectin, the hydrochloroquine and so forth, none of that has changed. Um, but if you need to refer back to that, refer back to that. And it's a short list of things that work. Okay, so with that, we actually finished a little bit early. So we have three minutes for either concluding statements, Travis or Leah, um, or questions from anybody uh, for either, either of the topics today. Hi, Greg, can you hear me? 
We can. Go right ahead. Great. Travis, you did a great job. I, I think what I would say first off is everyone, if you have not, please read the statement that we put out at National AMDA. It really describes how most of us in the field view it. And the most important thing to remember from our standpoint is that the, the studies that were done did not reflect whatsoever a population that generalizes to nursing home population. So that's a really important thing to remember. Um, we do not anticipate endorsing or prescribing it um, as a matter of recommendation from AMDA and recommend against it. And this is in line with many other organizations, including now the Cleveland Clinic and Mount Sinai who are refusing to use it. Um, the FDA is currently um, under investigation by the Office of Inspector General and Medicare is now, um, has started the process of a national coverage determination which may end up with a, a coverage of with evidence development outcome, which will then link the payment to an actual registry-based, evidence-based um, way of thinking about paying for it. So lots to come, um, but the simple thing to, to know is that most people that live in nursing homes would never have made it into this trial. They excluded people over 85. You couldn't be on any coagulants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm happy to talk about this more and have lots of uh, material developed around this, but I think the simple thing is to read the AMDA statement and that our population is generally not going to be a good candidate. And, and I would piggyback on that to say that the data, um, the post-hoc analysis data is outside of, of the norm for what we typically use to determine the uh, or what the FDA typically uses to approve a drug, and even in an accelerated approval process, um, it, it doesn't it doesn't hold up. And the initial data um, was consistent with all the previous studies on any treatments that um, target the amyloid beta plaques, and and so the. The conclusion with the, you know, at the time that the studies were pulled was that this was just like everything else, except it looked like a very robust amyloid plaque buster. So it does the job, but is that consistent with any, any statistically significant clinical outcome? And that's the part that, you know, I think they cherry picked the data in order to try to say yes to something that uh, over 25 previous studies um, right. said no to. And I think it's, I think this plays to our intense emotional desire to find something that, that treats, cures, that has some benefit for this, this very serious disease. And we just want it to work so badly that we were willing to, at least the FDA was willing to, to say yes to something that they, they shouldn't have. Yeah, there have been, there's been 32 studies that have all failed to the tune of $40 billion for a, drug, for a drug just like this. So for context. I think that message is pretty simple. And with that, um, I think we'll call it quits for today. Um, we will probably have just a hit and miss, a whole bunch of little things I've been collecting for next month. So we will... Um, see everybody in September. Thanks for joining us today.
Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club.